This is a production of Cornell University. Yeah, uh, well, well, as always, uh, thanks to our live audience for you guys uh, listening or, or watching on YouTube. Thanks for watching. This is the 11th episode of our Cornell Turf Show this year, uh, more than halfway through our spring series. Uh, today's guest, Dr. Sean Askew, Virginia Tech, weed scientist. Uh, we'll talk about a lot of things with Sean. Uh, we may have some spontaneous rapping on the show. Sean is a accomplished <laughs> musician. Uh, we may talk or may not see that later on. We'll see. Um, but as always, we'll, we'll start the show off with Frank Rossi giving us a little bit of a, a weather overview and, and some uh, cool little tidbits from the last week we've seen. Hey, yeah. Thanks, Carl. Hi, everybody. And thanks again to Sean for joining us. All of you either watching live uh, or, or uh, watching a recording or listening on a podcast. Uh, if you're getting to watch it, you see this, uh, you know, little baby face here uh, announcing probably the most exciting uh, golf time of the year for a lot of us uh, in the golf business, uh, the Masters. Um, and, and of course, it continues the, the, the routine of family members getting out and working. And, and this superintendent was bragging on his daughter uh, cutting lasers uh, on, on the greens in the morning. But I'd have to say by far the thing that it actually choked me up when I saw it was uh, Matsuyama's caddy uh, dropping it in and bowing to the course. So, uh, you know, for guys like us, this doesn't get any better than that. Now, with that, Carl, let me get to the BMP of the week with you. Uh, just to remind everybody, this is a, a project underway with the New York State Pollution Prevention Institute that's housed at the Rochester Institute of Technology that gets its funding from the Department of Environmental Conservation. And we have partnered with them to work on uh, adoption and uptake of the BMPs. And there's a website you can go to, sign up, get more information. But today, Carl, we got you and this lovely grin on your face promoting our poster. And so what's the tip of the day? Yeah, so, so Frank, a lot of times we talk about protecting water quality and we think about the fertilizer we apply in the golf course, the, the pesticide, application, pesticide applications we make, but really our wash pad areas are, are a source of um, point source pollution, we can call it, but a singular source, a place where we might see uh, a lot of times the grass clippings that you wash off of equipment, the oil residues that come off of there and the pesticide residues, sediment. And a lot of times we see those situated near water bodies. So uh, we have some, some points on this poster that address things you can do to, to reduce the amount of water that you use at a wash pad facility and also maybe to, to help with water quality. Um, and so some of these things, reducing just the amount of water you use goes a long way. Just changing the hose nozzle, right? And there's this little brass hose nozzle we got here that, that our friend Rick Flattery, former superintendent of Locust Hill Country Club, found uh, works really well. It's 10 bucks. You can pick it up at a, a, a hardware store and it reduces your water use on wash pads by 50%, right? So that's one really easy thing. Switch in, switch out, get a cheap nozzle uh, that can help you reduce the amount of water. And then, uh, you know, another thing you can do is just blow equipment off before you wash it with, with uh, whether that's a backpack blower, a pressurized air blower. Um, you know, not only does that significantly, again, reduce water use by about 50%, but hey, your mechanic might thank you, right? We're not, we're not using so much water all over the, the equipment, maybe get a little less rust, a little less wear and tear. And then one thing you can do if you're gonna use those tools to reduce water use, how about you measure it too? And this is just attaching another uh, flow meter again, you know, 50, 75 bucks, pick this up somewhere, know how much you use. And then, you know what, let's, let's look at that car farm too, right? You guys are washing equipment. 
the, the standard image in my head, Frank, I work in, in a cart barn, is you just got a kid who's just pointing the hose and just on his phone spraying it, right? So, you know, maybe it's a good thing if, if you're concerned about water use, especially moving into the future where we may start paying a lot more for water, thinking more judiciously about using water. Let's think about how much water we use on the wash pad and think about ways to reduce that. And I'm telling you, Carl, the other thing that you put in each slide about the cart barn is worth noting because not only are we obviously trying to conserve water in many places, uh, but uh, we're also being, there's a greater demand for water. Carts are being washed uh, more frequently now. And I think it's just good knowledge to know, hey, how much did our water use go up during the pandemic? How much of our water use gone up since we've gone to single cart people, right? And, and are we, can we clean them a different way that's not as reliant on, uh, on using potable water? And of course, Carl, you're the you're the expert with those cart barn BMPs that one of these days are going to see the light of day. We'll see one day, one day maybe. <laughs> All right. All right. So let's get to the grown grass part. That, that I tell you that some of these low hanging fruits in the BMPs, uh, big thanks to Carl and everybody, Rick Slatter, everybody helps us put these together. Uh, and we're going to be out and about talking about these more. But for now, the story is play and traffic and people want to get out there and you know, you learned this morning that the average temperatures uh, really at this time of the year for our, you know, the Northeast is between the mid 50s and the mid 60s. And so it's been much warmer than normal uh, over the last several weeks, which has given us this false sense and the growing season has really pushed. Now, uh, Doug Soldat tweeted out a really interesting picture uh, last week also about how phosphorus deficiency is showing up where he's putting on more fertilizer where he's getting more growth. In places where he had low or very little phosphorus, he was seeing no deficiency symptoms. Now, that's just a, a small aspect of the way plants manage and, 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 and show uh, nutrient deficiencies. But I think we also see a lot of people worried about bentgrass turning red, poa turning red at this time of the year, or the bentgrass especially. You know, is it red leaf spot or whatever? And I would say in general, I think we're hearing most of the time, it's just a little bit of phosphorus deficiency or uptake stuff. Look at your growth rates, right? Now, of course, we're all pushing our growth rates these days just to keep up with the traffic. Now, I, I think when you talk about growth rates and how things are moving along and, and coming together, you start to focus on the soil temperatures. And you can see now we've changed the scale down here at the bottom where the majority of us now are in the upper 40s and 50s, right? Obviously, as you get down to where Dr. Askew is, it's quite a bit warmer soil conditions in South Jersey and Delmarva, the Philly area. And then when you get into the New York metropolitan area, you're talking about pretty steady early, um, low to mid 50. So things are really accelerating. It's going to be interesting moving forward. A lot of guys taking advantage, maybe trying to do some airification. You know, the funny thing is we get these greens in perfect shape and then we go do this to them. I keep wondering about this, but we'll hold this for another day. Maybe we, when we can get my pal Rakaswa on and talk to him about the, the problems with early spring airification. Now, the season has definitely advanced very rapidly. You can see a, a Buffalo and, and Rochester in particular uh, down in the metro New York area. Everybody is pretty generally a week to two weeks ahead of normal. Now, you can accumulate uh, growing degree days, base 50, pretty rapidly at this time of year. That's why we use base 32 
uh, for the seed head discussion that we're going to have later over the course of the over the morning here. So, so what is coming up? Well, you, you can look at one way to visualize this pretty much from here to the 21st uh, next week, we're going to be below normal, right? We've got a high percentage of being below normal, um, and, and particularly for most of the Northeast, maybe up into Maine, you know, where the five people who live in Maine up here with Robert Searle uh, are listening. Uh, they may get a little bit uh, above normal, but most of us are going to be a little bit cooler. Um, and then when it comes to rainfall, there was a couple of big winners this past week, but most, again, we're on the, you know, mid to three, half to three quarters of an inch was pretty widespread uh, across the region. And the outlook is looking for a little more rain along the coast. So certainly coastally, you can expect some rain uh, over the next week anyway. Now, the topic for today with my esteemed colleague is annual bluegrass, right? And particularly this aspect of annual bluegrass growth and development that continues to plague us. Now, we have done everything we can over the years to try to target these early spring applications, both with Embark and Proxy. But I want to go back a little bit, probably even before Dr. Askew might have even been born. You guys, young weed scientists are so great nowadays, that back in the early 80s, there was a scientist, Rich Cooper, who, from Ohio, was doing this work with Tony Kosky when they were graduate students at the Ohio State Work University working for John Street. This is the original work with Embark that looked at seed head suppression, right? Annual bluegrass seed head suppression. So one of the first things that came out of this particular study was that when you sprayed the medium or, or high rate of Embark, right? Here's no Embark, uh, low rate, medium and high rate. You look at the data of total non-structural carbohydrates, which is a measure of the stored energy that a plant might have available to us, both in soluble sugars and long chain, uh, long chain uh, storage, storage uh, compounds like fructose and starch in, in warm season grasses, right? So then they looked at root elongation. They also found, you know, a long time ago that, that high rates of Embark uh, or even medium rates of Embark we're really accelerating root elongation uh, compared to control. Certainly the high rate did. Now, the other thing that this paper noted uh, is that the content of uh, carbohydrate content, while it increased, while it increased uh, when you suppress the seed heads, it then depleted after the fact because this was the early indication of the rebound right? This was our first identification of the rebound effect that, of course, has served as the basis for a lot of growing degree day models that are used and why we use them. And then along came Dr. Askew and asked the question, what if we applied these things uh, later in the season? And particularly winter in the mid-Atlantic where uh, Dr. Askew is based, he saw immediately that seed head suppression when you added that winter application, winter and spring was certainly better than spring by itself. Now, Zach Riker goes to work for Bear, puts together a national look at this thing, right? This was a, I just found this recently, Sean, that this paper was done. And of course you were on it with many of our colleagues, John Inguijado here in Connecticut. And here are the application timings for this fall application of proxy now. Remember the research I showed you was based on fluidide, but that's been pretty much replaced both because people had a hard time figuring out how to use it and they stopped making it. 
So proxy became the go-to compound that also wasn't as hard uh, necessarily on adjacent uh, plants that might have been treated. Now, here's the crazy data that, again, for those of you watching on News, News Channel 6 can hone in on this. We'll just take it really simple and go to the Connecticut data, right? So here is untreated, and you can see lots of, lots of room under the seed head cover progress curve, right? How much seed heads we were able to actually to uh, suppress. So the pretty standard spring applications of Proxy and Primo, for those of you watching, is in red. And then anything that had a fall application is in yellow, gray, or blue, uh, yellow, gray, or blue. And you can see in general, in general, we continue to see this uh, improvement in seed head suppression. And I would, I would venture to say consistency. I, I think one of the things I've noticed about these fall applications, Sean, is they're, they're a lot more consistently giving you suppression. And I think sometimes people... Uh, overestimate how well things didn't work. <laughs> you know, we used to get 40% suppression if we got lucky in the spring, 50% if we got lucky, and we, you know, beat the band how great that was. So I think the fall applications have definitely, I think, brought some more consistency. So let's talk about this a little bit, little bit with three simple questions. Are we seeing better suppression in the fall? Uh, do we get, what is your thoughts about, I don't expect you to have the research, so I'm kind of asking you to speculate here, about health benefits compared to Embark using proxy, and how much does, uh, we'll get to the point Carl was bringing up before I uh, jumped on, how much does annual bluegrass seed head stuff uh, impact putting? So with that, I'm going to stop sharing, uh, and I'm going to look at you, and we'll start with how well are these fall things working uh, everywhere? And in particular, we're here in the Northeast for us. All right. So thanks for having me on, Frank. And first of all, the, the concept behind this fall application deal is that it has to do with trying, it's something that we don't really know. Uh, it has to do with how is ethophon inhibiting seed head development. And certainly I would surmise that what ethophon is doing is different from what mefluidide was doing, all right? And so ethophon is acting much more like a hormone in that it is affecting the, uh, the decision of the plant, whether or not it will make a seed head. And unfortunately, there's, who knows, there's four or five other hormones, many of them environmentally induced, that are doing the same thing. So all of these and this is me kind of speculating on what we think we know in the literature. It's okay, that, don't worry, Sean. Right. Nobody's listening, nobody's yeah. watching. It's just us. Anyway, so the idea is, is that ethophon is an influencer among several influencers. So as your environment changes from one winter season, spring season to the next, all these influencers are competing. If you get ethophon out in the spring, who are you influencing? You're only going to influence the plants that have not yet decided to make a seed head. And so the premise is if you put ethophon out in the fall and in the spring, you maintain a strong level of influence from that ethylene escalation that's happening when you apply ethophon so that even if you have a rogue warm day in the winter, you have that fall base application to continue to signal to the plants 
don't make a seed head. Don't make a seed head. Don't make a seed head. Even if there are environmental cues that says, no, make a seed head, man. What are you thinking? It's time. Right. You right. have to find is saying, don't make a seed head. These things are competing. And I, and I, one thing that I've noticed in our research, we always see phenomenal effects of this fall versus spring thing. And we also see phenomenal, we're talking 90 plus percent seed head suppression. I don't see those seed head suppression levels on in-play golf courses. Do you honestly, think that's because of timing or do you think that's because you might only have one biotype or do you think it's a little bit of both? The, the, the lingering question is, Sean, what you started with, something we don't know. Have you done or is the annual bluegrass, national annual bluegrass project working at all at trying to figure out what are the keys to flower in initiation that you may be hitting that many other guys can't right. hit? I honestly, so we're not looking at seed head suppression per se in that national program. We're looking more at herbicide resistance. And what I can say, and we're not really looking at PGRs, Pacrobutazol is one of the products, but a lot of the researchers have kind of shied away from it because there's not a baseline, uh, you know, expectation for resistance. And Paclo is a, a product that utilizes environmental stress as a cohort to mm -hmm. try to achieve displacement of annual bluegrass. You don't just spray Paclo and kill annual bluegrass. So how do you test resistance? Right, and so it's a lot more complicated than the the protocol they first designed for this for this project, and we don't really we're not getting outstanding information about how PGRs are influencing the POA. But at, at Virginia Tech, we we did kind of up the ante on PACLO, and we did we are seeing a lot of mechanisms, or at least we're seeing several populations that were responding quite differently to PACLO than. Uh, other populations. And I honestly believe that what's happening with ethophon and seed head suppression on golf courses is probably more due to the fact that ethophon has been used repeatedly on many of these golf courses. And therefore, we've already found the super sensitive biotypes and they haven't been able to make seed for a decade and they're not there. And so, you know, whereas at Tech, I can get 90% control on a given golf course that's used at the farm for eight to 10 years or more, they can't. And I think it's due to some level of resistance that's built up. Now, not to say, not in the classical sense, I'm not saying that, oh, well, ethophon doesn't work or proxy doesn't work at your course anymore because you got resistance. It's not quite like that. But I do think that the response of the population is a bit muted compared to a population that's never seen. So, so, so what you're suggesting, this is very interesting. What you're suggesting is chronic use that does a good job of suppressing seed heads uh, of a particular type that might be prevalent in a location. Over time, because that seed bank is depleted, because if there's new recruits, you know, uh, 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 so that begs the next question. How come or do, does proxy in your mind lead to a healthier annual bluegrass plant that like Embark did. Mm -hmm. And therefore you're, you're getting, but is that reducing fitness in some way? Well, that, so the ethophon along with other like Primo and, and the things that we do to manage, culturally manage our greens do cater to POA survival. Environmental stress fights that. 
And, you know, we kind of want to lose POA in, in many, most cases, uh, but we don't want to lose it rapidly. We want to lose it slowly. And so, but we're managing to maintain a putting surface above all else. And therefore POA just rides along and gets the benefits from that. And yes, when we inhibit seed head production, just like was shown with the carbohydrate changes with um, a fluidized, we inhibit the plant from spending massive amounts of stored energy to make those seeds. And so the ability to preserve that stored in energy gives those plants the ability to make all of the environmental fighting um, things that they need to manage stress later in the season as they start to experience the stress. Now, if you contrast that with not using a seed head suppressor and having copious amounts of seed heads being produced daily, literally daily, we're mowing off new seed production with oils and fatty acids, and I'm, we're talking high energy stuff daily. And then what happens? The plant starts to turn yellow as soon as the first hint of warm weather, and they'll start to die out, right? Because they have literally, they, they've given it everything they've got. And that's what they're designed to do. That's what an annual plant is designed to do. It's designed to give it everything it's got, put all of the energy into that uh, endosperm of those seed, and then die. And then their, their, their longevity is based on that seed production. And with POA, I mean, they can get in and fit in anywhere, right? And so that's how they're designed. So, so, we, so we, we take out that energy production and we leave those existing plants more. But let's get back to the proxy thing and the resistance. So POA is primarily, even though we manage and we've actually produced phenotypes of perennial plants, POA is an annual plant. And even on greens, a large percentage, even of our highly managed, which results in high percentage of perennial POA, highly managed greens, we still have a lot of annual POA. Well, which one of them's produced seed? The ones that Ethifon is not as active on. So we are, there's no way we can't be selecting for phenotypes within that population that are less susceptible to, POA, to, to Ethifon, or it might be there's so many mechanisms that could be at play here. It could be that they're more susceptible to the environmental cues that say make a seed head. So they don't hear the ethophon. Okay, so this this raises a question to me that you must have asked yourself when we start when you started this thing is, yeah, I know when I studied pre-emergent applications of crabgrass stuff in the fall, the first question I got is, well, what happens if my grass dies in the winter and I need to seed in the spring? How concerned were you and what do you see? of maybe a negative effect of applying a growth regulator at that time of the year, which is odd, right? Some, most guys are applying it with their snow mold. Right, I mean, right. most places that's almost recommended. But when you were imagining this, have you seen any downside to that fall app relative to sort of setback of the POA if you've got pure POA surfaces like a lot of guys do here in the Northeast? Right, my biggest fear was for for you folks, like in Northern New York and extremely cold climates, any climate where in the winter, it's possible to lose POA because of winter stress. That's not my environment. You know, we, we get severe winters, but the longevity and the, you know, we, we don't get ice cover and snow cover for long periods. We don't even, our guys put down snow mold, but, but not every year. It's only if they really expect. So it's not the same environment, but we were keen to look at any indicator of that in our research, even though I don't have the extreme environment that you guys would have to truly test it. And I haven't seen anything that really suggests that amping up your ethophon program with winter apps or fall apps. Some people are doing fall and winter apps followed by spring apps. Um, what I often see associated with POA injury from ethophon is 
in the spring, if you're getting intermittent frost events and ethophon is on the ground, we'll see POA, you know, turn yellow, turn orange. But I don't really see, I haven't seen that type of effect during harsh winter conditions. I see the same level of, you know, your reddening and the, the red tips, things that would be caused by a, a cold temperature induced phosphorus uh, uh, availability issue. Uh, those things are fairly uniform in the non-treated as well as in the ethophon treated. We don't really see, I haven't seen an indication that the ethophon is going to um, reduce winter survival, but okay. I haven't had the environment to test it. Okay, one more question on this uh, stuff with plant health things, because we get these lingering uh, early season anthracnose uh, infections, Sean, uh, you know, where guys might use the fall app on their greens because uh, they've had some success. But as you know, you've talked about, there's a lot of variables involved with this plant. It's, you know, it's not a sort of straightforward deal. It adapts, adjusts. We don't understand how it's doing it. We have a lot of issues with guys who push their greens, have to push their greens later into the season. It's not really a winter thing. It's more just, man, growth regulations from this. Then they got DMIs that they're putting on for summer patch stuff. Then they might use a pre-post, a pre-crab goose application, right? The, the oxidized on benzolite combination. And I, we've talked about this in the show so far this year. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how proxy adds or helps to that sort of early season regulation issue. And if that isn't some of the problems that we see happening when POA starts to fail. Well, I don't, I don't think proxy is going to help. And I've actually designed and conducted studies looking at your 90 GDD early dollar spot program with DMIs and I've thrown all those things into the system to try to see what comes out the other end. And I haven't really seen anything um, with the limited work that I'm able to do and in, in the environment, environment that I have. So no, I haven't seen indications that proxies heating things up or really stirring the pot in a, in a bad way when it comes to all of these additives. I think it's a matter of managing your environmental stress and just knowing that if you put a growth regulator like Ethafon, or if you put a growth regulating DMI down, you're not helping. So it's a matter of, you know, in your, your shaded areas, your weak areas, it's just a matter of keeping a keen eye on how they're going to respond to whatever that challenge is. And knowing that you're not helping that problem by adding these. So, so then it's, you know, it's a, you're weighing your need for seed suppression against a risk over here and, and you just have to balance but it. But it's interesting. I want to ask you this last question about playability. Carl, kill me if I don't get you on this in, in a minute. But what, what you just described is really fascinating because within a green, you might have a shade or a high traffic area that maybe that's where you shut the boom off or if you, you go at a lower rate right. or you, you know, whatever. And I think that's the kind of site-specific management, again, that we've got to start thinking about. And this is, of course, another example of it. Okay. That's 100% a mental thing, too. I see the one that drives me nuts are athletic field managers. You have a multiplex, and, you know, it's three or four fields together, and there's very measurable and repeatable high wear spots on these fields. But the vast majority of it is like in-between area where people set up their lawn chairs and stuff, and, and that could get a pre-emerge. We could put a root-inhibiting pre on 60, 70% of that area, as long as you don't put it on the high wear areas, but nobody seems to have that concept in their head of zone it's, it's, treating. Yeah, 
it, because we didn't train him this right. We yeah. didn't train him with the mindset to go out Uniform and- Uniform application, you know, the, the et, cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right. And, and it wasn't so easy to not do it in the past. And I think you're right. We talk about this all the time in sports fields. Okay, so now, how I know you've done the work with Bent and POA spots that shows the deflection and those interested could go listen to our wonderful podcast episode. That's one of the most listened to ones we've ever done. I'm interested in the other side of this. Does where we got a lot of POA and you get some POA seeds and some POA doesn't seed. Would you expect the same kind of trouble in putting uh, like, you know, in that situation, because I, I'm perplexed by why they complain about POA in the Pacific Northwest and the Southern California where they Tory Pines and bumpy POA is all you hear out there. And then they come to Wingfoot and they, they, don't, they think it's bent grass and it's 100% POA annual. How do you reconcile the impact of the way we think about POA's effect on putting performance? So in our ball roll work, very few of the POA patches had seed heads. And if they did have seed heads, it was at a time of year where it was a bit later in the season, the seed heads were mostly diminished. Like, so we would have a clump that in prime seed head production would have had say 250 seed heads on it. When we did our work, there may have been five. So seed heads weren't a major contributor when we did our work. And it was on both of the golf courses where we did, where we selected multiple greens were pretty high in. The management, the way we like to describe it, if you close your eyes, we can leave you there all day. You will not find that POA plant. You're not going to be able to feel it. But when you open your eyes, you can see that there is a textural difference. I just don't know that the human hand could have picked it up. So outside of seed heads, just talking about POA, what's the deal with ball roll? I would say I, I can sum it up as, as, as simply as this. The higher the... Um, the difference between bent and POA composition gets, the worse your ball roll is going to be. So as you move to a predominantly POA system, your ball roll is going, your consistency of roll is going to improve. As you move to a predominantly bent system, your consistency is going to improve. But where you have, where you're rolling across POA and you encounter a zone of bent, I would expect a deviation there. Uh, either the bent density is going to be low enough that the ball is going to sink in more. And when it comes back out on the other side, like a wave, it's going to hit that POA. Uh, and I'm, I'm magnitude, I'm, I'm increasing the magnitude of the actual effects. We're, we're talking microscopic effects, but it's enough. Once that slight bounce has been created, and when the ball starts to bounce, when it comes back into the canopy, it plows into the canopy. And now density changes in the canopy can steer it a little bit left or a little bit right. And so when you transition from POA to bent to POA to bent, that's where you have problems. If you're all POA, you're good. If you're all bent, you're good. Sean, what a joy. Carl, we're at 30 minutes, but I, want, I don't want to leave without letting you uh, bring up the stat of, you know, putting later in the day, uh, the leaders. Can you talk to ask Sean about that particular stat? Well, so, you know, there's, we have the shot link data now, Sean, and there's these people on Twitter who, who analyze all this data and, and look at when players play during the day, what is their strokes gain? What is their putting performance like, basically? And once you normalize for a player's ability and look at the PM, they see, yeah, although it's, a, it's only a microscopic little bit, they put worse in the afternoons than in the mornings. Uh, I don't think that's revolutionary to us. Uh, you know, if you could speculate 
quickly on, on what you think might cause that. Is it the growth changes? Is it the traffic uh, influence of, right. of all the Any anomaly what would you on the green? Any anomaly on the green is going to be magnified with growth. So if it's a differential between pole and bent, that differential is going to be greater the, the further away from mowing you get. If it's a ball mark, the differential between the perimeter of the ball mark and the ball mark itself is going to be the greatest the further away from the mowing you get. And so I, I think even if it's a, um, let's say it, it's a, a pythium root uh, issue that's causing a regulation of, of a pure bent green and POA has nothing to do with it, then the fact that part of that green is not growing as effectively and the other is, you're going to have the highest degree of difference between density and, and you know, that could steer the ball the further away from mowing that you get. And I, and yes, I, so their data I think is biologically real. And the only way we'd be able to see it is by taking that massive amounts of data and showing how, look at here, there's this slight change in their performance later in the day. Yes, I think it's, a, it's magnifying these differences that are, that truly are on the green, but they are of such subtle influence. It took me and my student a year and a half, two years, <laughs> tens of thousands of balls just to control variability enough to start to measure. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. for those interested, there's great papers on this, right, Carl? We, we've, we've done deep dives on this a few times. We're at the Witching Hour. Sean, let me thank you for joining us. Glad to be really here. appreciate you taking the time, particularly on short notice. Carl, uh, we could talk to this guy all day, but we better let everybody get back to work. Yeah, we'll, we'll get everybody back. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining. I did post the, the podcast. Uh, that Frank and Sean did a year ago, talking a little bit more in depth about some of this stuff. Uh, they also talk about a, a POA cure, a, a product that may help you if you're in that kind of 50 bent, 50 POA range, you know, getting further to one side or the other, maybe that's uh, an interesting conversation for you to check out. So uh, thanks everybody for joining. Uh, tomorrow's webinar, we'll have Matt Elmore on from Rutgers University talking about some weed season, uh, early weed seed uh, issues. And, and until then, we'll see you guys later. See you guys later. Okay. Thanks, thanks, Sean. Guys. Yep. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.